Welcome to Book Lovers Companion with the Chattering Teacup and Edith. We have two guests today, Cynthia and Carmen. I've spoken to each of you individually in your capacity as an author. And for this episode, I asked you to join us in your capacity as readers. Cynthia, good to see you Hello. again. And it's nice that you agreed to it. Oh, it was my pleasure. I, I appreciate being asked. And it was a pleasure talking to you the first time. Thank you. You as well. Your capacity as a reader, because the two of us didn't get much reading done during our time in, I wouldn't say lockdown, because Austria wasn't locked down, actually. And I didn't get much reading done, to be honest, in the eight weeks, I only read uh, three books. So I had a lot of work to do, more work than I usually had when I'm not working from home. And the teacup as well didn't get much reading done. For me, it was work as always. Went to the office, had to, and yeah, sadly not enough time to read no definitely definitely not and that's why we unashamedly asked the two of you to join us for this episode and let us know about your favorite books or your not so favorite books it's up to you whatever you wish to share with us is fine with us because i presume there are books you liked more than others and what would you like to share with us what kind of books have you read and what did you enjoy and why okay um well i I think summer for a lot of people is prime reading time, maybe even more so than winter because we take books on holiday. But this year I think is strange because we can't go on holiday. Belgium has closed borders and they're advising all residents to staycation. And I think that's the same for friends of mine, regardless of where they are in Denmark, in the Netherlands, in France. And so I think people will be reading, but I don't know about the types of books they'll be reading if that changes. For me, growing up in Southern California, I didn't do much reading in the summer because I was busy at the sea almost every day at the beach, swimming, surfing, skimboarding. And books didn't really come into my summer program until later. But with that in mind, I have already started my reading for the summer. And the first one on my list is The Apology Box by Naomi, Naomi Olstead. And it's actually not available in bookstores yet. And it's a beta book or beta manuscript. And I just wanted to say something about that because I think writers know what a beta reading is, but probably uh, the, the average reader doesn't know that this is part of the manuscript development process. So I'm reading The Apology Box and, and I have read for other writer friends of mine, like Carmen, for instance. And it, a, a beta book is a manuscript that's near completion, but perhaps needs a bit more work. And it's a way to identify gaps in character development or plot or world building or what have you. And sometimes the, the author is too close to the material to see those issues themselves. And so having beta readers is really useful. The Apology Box is, I think, going to hit bookstores in 2021 or 2022. And it's a great read about a teenage girl who does something impulsive, like a lot of us did when we were teens. But this incident blows up in her face and has life-altering consequences for 200 residents of the small town where she lives. And the title, The Apology Box, comes from um, the protagonist's way of dealing with what she's done. And it's both agonizing and uplifting. And I think people will really be able to resonate with the storyline. And it's, it's targeted at young adults. So you'll have to just keep your ears tuned for that title. Although that could even change because this is early stages um, of the book. But that's what I'm one of the things I'm reading right now. And, and I'm enjoying that. And is the author one a member of your Brussels Writer's Circle or someone you just happen to know outside of this circle? Well, I actually met Naomi through AWP, which is Association of Writers and Writing Professionals. And Naomi and I I were in the same cohort four or five years ago. We were selected as mentees for the Writer to Writer Mentorship Program, which AWP runs. And annually, they select 50 writers from their membership of tens of thousands to participate in this program. And so you have a very established writer pairing up with someone who's just emerging or somewhere along their development route. And Naomi and I were both selected. Naomi is a screenwriter and a playwright and is, I think the apology box is her first novel. Um, she's written a memoir as well. So that's where I met her and she lives in Salt Lake City. Yeah. So not a Brussels writer, 
but but nonetheless, um, she's actually connected to AWP, and AWP is connected to another one of my uh, summer reads, if you want me to share that now. Yes, please do so. Okay. So this one is called The All Night Sun by Diane Zinna, Zinna Z-I-N-N-A. And I put this on my list because I really adore Diane, and she started the Writer to Writer Mentorship Program, so she has a place in my heart. Um, but this particular book is her debut novel, and it follows a... A, a young woman named Lauren who teaches at a small college outside of Washington, D.C. And um, she's smart and very well liked, but her personal life is not so poised. And the story takes her after accepting an invitation from one of her students to Sweden. And on her last night, Lauren goes with friends on a seaside camping trip to celebrate uh, Midsummer's Eve, which you might do in, in Austria as well. And things take a dark turn. So it's a book about grief and loneliness and female friendships and some other things that won't, you know, won't be a spoiler. Sounds a bit like a mystery. Yeah, that's The All Night Sun. You might want to check that out by Diane Zinna. Okay. And um, I think Diane lives in the D.C. area. And she did visit Europe probably or not? Yes, Sweden. This is where the um, the material for the book came from. Absolutely. I don't know how many years ago, but but that's what she's writing about most definitely. Another book I'm reading is called The Green Road, which is not a new book by Anne Enright, who's an award-winning Irish author. She won the Irish Novel of the Year and the Man Booker Prize for The Gathering in, I think, 2007. And she's written several novels, short stories, and nonfiction. And I only came to her through one of my BWC Brussels Writers Circle friends and former co-chair Colin Walsh, who is an amazing writer in his own right. He started writing fiction in 2016. And, you know, in just a few short years, he's won the Francis McManus Short Story Award, the Bridport Short Story Award. He was shortlisted for the Bath uh, Short Story Award. And he was named the Hennessy New Irish Writer for the year 2019. So that gives you an indication he's just on this trajectory of brilliance. But if you want to check out one of his audio stories called Magic Spuds and Green Welts, go to the BBC Radio 4 archive and it was broadcast November 11 in 2018. And um, mm -hmm. it's brilliant. He's the one that turned me on to Anne and Wright. But this story, The Green Road, I'm only a few chapters into it, but I really love Anne's writing and the way that she brings the reader into the story. Um, she's so descriptive that you stop being an onlooker and you become a member of the family watching the painful unspooling of this story and you become a member of the family and the story begins in 1980 and it spans 30 years and follows this these four children I think they're four yeah there's a family of six you can check in with me in a few weeks to find out how it ends because I haven't finished it yet but or friend me on Goodreads and you can read my review <laughs> but that's one that um, I'm looking forward to um, it's just really rich, the writing. It's not, uh, it's a real departure from what I do. And so for that reason, I, I really enjoy it. And then probably the last thing I have on my list, which is something that's on my, my list year round, which is the poetry pharmacy. And I'm sharing this with you and your listeners, because I think that um, it's really timely to have something like this in your life. So the, the poetry pharmacy is the subtitle is tried and true prescriptions for the heart, mind and soul. And the author is William Sagart. And um, it's a collection of poetry. But the way he's laid out the collection is that you you go into the book like you would Google your symptoms. So for instance, purposelessness, which I'm hearing from a lot of my friends are suffering right now. A lot of creative people are finding it difficult to create under the certain context of COVID mm. lockdown. And then the if you're in the US, the added layer of racial violence and tension that's that's occurring all across the country. And so you don't have to despair. You can you can get this book, The Poetry Pharmacy, and when and when you are feeling some kind of condition, you just look it up by condition. I'm happy to read you one of the poems if you're interested. Yes, please. Feel free. A short one. So this would be un this would be under the condition that he's listed for purposelessness. And it's called The Way It Is by William Strafford. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. 
Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So there you have it. <laughs> you don't sit down and read such a book from cover to cover. You look something up and then you read it, read the poem. Oftentimes I'll wait for a recommendation. And I haven't read anything cover to cover since four or five years ago when I sat on the sofa all summer while I was living in Cairo, Egypt, and I read George R. R. Martin's Lord of the Rings, The Dance of Fire and Ice, or Ice and Fire. And I couldn't get off the sofa for days. It was probably more like a, a couple of weeks, to be honest with you. But I don't read like that anymore, or rarely do I read like that. And it's mostly because I have too many interruptions in my day, and I don't like, I don't like that. So What I do is I read mostly in the evening now and, and it's, you know, the hour or two before I go to bed and it's just a nice way to sort of clear out the mind and mm. to introduce completely new ideas into my head. And so I have a peaceful night's sleep and I'm not thinking about all the things that are going on or not, not working in my day. And it's a real release. And unless I go on holiday and then I bring a book and I might sit and, you know, if I have the, the opportunity and just read it. So, which means this year you don't have to carry around loads of books when you stay at home. So you have your library with you. This is true. <laughs> This is absolutely true. Yeah, I think it's going to be, the, you know, the summer of Kindle <laughs> for a lot of people. Yeah, I fully agree with what you say because I stumble across lots of books on Twitter, for example, during this stay-at-home time and working from home. And like I said, I've only managed to read three books in the time. I thought, oh, yes, I might have enough time to read this book and this book and this book. And it turned out, no, not at all. So they're still waiting for me to be read on my Kindle. Yeah. And yesterday I've tweeted, come and saw the tweet. I went into a bookshop. So I went out with three new books. But at least you started the first one. Yes. Yeah, so. Ah, good for you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many already on my Kindle because of the things I found uh, on Twitter and they had a lot of special prices Oh yeah, on the German Amazon page. And so I thought, yeah, why not? Sounds good. So I downloaded them and I didn't get the chance to read them. Yeah. But at least they don't take up the space in the room. Yeah, that's true. Well, I have piles all around of books that I want to get to and read. And, you know, I will eventually. I've actually been quite busy. And my husband also has been working from home for the past couple of months, which is a kind of a new thing. But he's very structured, you know, coffee breaks are at a certain time and lunch. And so, whereas I might have just blown through the morning without having a break, now we kind of have coffee together, which is nice, but it's just different. Mm -hmm. And it's meant a disruption to the, the schedule. But I don't know what it'll be like going forward. You know, we, we had our flights uh, to Canada canceled and um, that was a two month trip for me. So I will be here now looking for things to do. So you'll have to share with me what your reading list looks like. So maybe I get some new recommendations. My reading list was two crime novels, one by Mary Hanna and one by Caroline Goldsworthy, whom we interviewed for one episode and one novel by Jane Olden, who also was a guest on my podcast. Nice. And that's it. And Uh, since everything changed again, I have managed to read two novels on my Kindle, romance novels. And I'm currently reading the second book in the Inspector Chopra series. And only yesterday, I bought Invisible Women. Ah. It's nonfiction. It's about okay. the data bias in a world designed for men. And... I've also bought Blood and Sugar. Oh. It's a crime fiction novel by Laura Shepard Robinson. And I bought another non-fiction novel, The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper. Wow. I bet that'll be interesting. I've started to read the introduction like I usually do. And it's a lot of social history. And it already started out quite interesting about the two worlds. She calls it the, the tale of two cities, actually. The, the city of the rich and affluent and the city of the poor, where the five women who were murdered by Jack the Ripper lived. And it's quite interesting at the beginning when she says not all of them were prostitutes. So it was always assumed that all the women he killed were prostitutes, which isn't actually proven. Right. Wow. Interesting. I'm looking forward to it. So that's my reading for the future. <laughs> One of the books I finished in the last few weeks was The Cutting Place 
by Jane Casey. It's a book in a series. It's set in London. Yes, I think it's more a police procedure where um, they find body part, no, only a few parts of a body in the beginning, and they, they try to find out who this was. And then a journalist contacts the police officer and more or less together they try to find out what happened, who mur- who was the victim and who murdered them. And it has some kind of a conspiracy. It was very interesting. It was a thrilling book for me to read, I have to say. And So I get the impression that you are both crime readers. And I know Carmen likes crime too. I have no idea where you get the idea. Not only, from. but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are. I did hear you say romance, but maybe there's a crime romance. <laughs> Might have been because Mary Hannah's uh, latest book is a romance and crime. And I'm not sure if you could call it a crime romance because there is a relationship for her DCI. But when I say romance, I really mean romance. Okay. <laughs> so as far as crime is concerned, now that Carmen is back on again with video and she also hears us, we don't hear her because she's still turned off her mic. But today is Saturday the 6th of June and we, the three of us, would be at Crimefest now, wouldn't we? Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately not, but yeah. Yeah, can't be helped. But we got a newsletter this week. I'm sure you received it as well, where the participants are for next year are listed. I don't think I've checked that yet. I've only seen that they're going to do a lot of online um, workshops, which is great, really, especially when you're like from a different country. But yeah, I mean, in a way, I think this virus has brought people together in another way, in reading, in, in this online event and doing a lot of things that otherwise we wouldn't be doing. So that's a good side, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you have watched a few episodes, but Newcastle Noir put out their panels, their Zoom panels on YouTube, where you can watch them for free, of course. There have been quite a few interesting ones. I haven't had the time yet to watch all of them. I've so far watched, I think, two, which I think is a great idea for us. Yeah. Poor souls. Definitely. Yeah, I watched recently Noir at the Bar, which again resulted in buying two more books. So I think now I have quite a huge pile to go through in the next week. I have to warn you that in one newsletter from Crime Fest, there was a link to a list they made of the best 100 crime books of last century. So there are quite a lot of interesting books in there. Yeah, I'm saving this for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> You might already have the first 50, so... I didn't know most of them, to be honest. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's going to result in another shipment of books. So I'm going to save it a bit for now. But I think, I mean, at least for me, books have been totally the highlight of this current quarantine week. I haven't been able to do much else. So I did some writing, but it was not really my usual routine. So books were really like, in a way, a way to travel without traveling, like kind of travel mm-hmm. with your mind. And when you ask me to to be in the podcast and I check which books I would talk about, I actually realized I read uh, much more nonfiction than I usually would. So normally I read a lot of crime, crime, fiction fiction and somehow I, I ended up reading a lot of non-fiction books of different kind but yeah that was a bit surprising to me <laughs> interesting because my German co-host James said he read a lot of horror stories horror books because they reflected his mood especially at the beginning of this whole coronavirus stay-at-home thing yeah actually one of the books that I have on uh, on my list for to share with you is also well, it's not a horror book, actually. It's a non-fiction book. It's um, Mark O'Connell, Notes from an Apocalypse, Personal Journey to the End of the World and Back. And I've actually, I think, also got this as a recommendation uh, on Twitter, I think, from Colin. He gives very good book recommendations also. So I read that and it's a really, it's brilliantly written book. It's very beautifully written. It deals with a lot of, like, basic philosophical questions about life and death of uh, of this author, of the writer, and what kind of world he's children will live in. It's a lot of about his own anxieties and what he does is he visits different places in the world where people are preparing for the end of the world, whether this is like planning to leave Earth altogether and have a colony on Mars or, you know, rich people having bunkers underground preparing for, you know, if there's a case of nuclear disaster. Uh, then you have this uh, uh, also in the New Zealand, the community is preparing for the end of the world. I mean, it raises really a lot of interesting questions. In the end, he also visits Chernobyl in a way like 
like a place that was place of death, but it's now recovering. I mean, it's, it's such a beautiful book, really so beautifully written. And that I've read um, his book on inter um, artificial intelligence for, which is also like, I think one of my favorite books now. So that's something, it's like a dark topic, but the way it's tackled, it really gives you hope and it's inspiring and gives you lots of food for thought. So that was really, I think one of the top reads definitely during the week. So a bit green topic, but very soothing. As you mentioned it, this topic, I wanted often when you read about books, I think young adult books, young adult fiction has very interesting topics, often these uh, dystopian themes. And uh, I wonder why, maybe I haven't seen them, adult fiction doesn't have this many dystopian books nowadays. Maybe it's only my impression, but I don't know. Just a moment. Yes, you didn't listen to the, to the latest German episode, obviously. You have been busy in studio too, obviously, because we've tackled quite a few dystopian books in our last I have the feeling that a majority of uh, young adult fiction nowadays is dystopian mm -hmm. stories. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know. But And I don't, I mean, they're interesting to read for me, but I don't want to read them one after another because they're usually teenagers are the main characters. And that's not really what I want to read. This maybe for me, I mean, what do you think about it? Or do you have some recommendations? Do you know what? I haven't, I haven't read a dystopian novel for a while. And probably the last one I read was Station Eleven by Canadian author, Emily Saint, it's not Saint Mandel. I'll have to look look it up, but it's really good. <laughs> And it is not young adult, it's adult. And it actually, in some ways, mirrors what's happening to us now. Only a small number of people have perished. I think we're around the 100,000 mark globally of um, people who have died from COVID. But in this particular novel, there's a real big epidemic. It's fascinating to read the other side of it for something that's so catastrophic and how people could have a life after something like that. So in one way, it's very it's very apocalyptic and scary and another another way it's sort of like you know you understand the resilience of human nature and ingenuity and and the sheer will to live and, and what that does for people and how you can explore that through fiction and, and fictional characters I think is really exciting. And since you asked the question about dystopian novels, would you say, Cynthia, that dystopian topics have become more in young adult fiction over the last few years? Because there was the discussion with the adult books, because Eric said he enjoyed Star Trek because it was a wonderful fairy tale. It was this positive outlook of the future and so on. It was utopian. A, a utopian theme and now we have more and more dystopian themes in, in books. Do you think it's also true for young adult books? I'm not sure. I mean, I kind of think the trend for the past 12 months or so has been more around um, giving voice to previously or historically marginalized populations. So um, more ethnicity with the characters, more stories that represent varied cultures. We've had more stories, I think, this year around teenage protagonists who are discovering their identity and, and coming into their own. That's an old story, but I think it's being told now more about people who perhaps are discovering that they're gay or transgender or something of that nature. So I think I haven't, I don't have the stats on this market to answer your question really, but just for my own, just from the people that I know who write within mm -hmm. the young adult market, I don't know anybody who's writing dystopian. But that doesn't mean it's not happening yeah yeah and maybe it will change because of this pandemic because people want to read more something more positive yeah more uplifting things From maybe on. maybe yeah i do think we're going to see a lot of covid stories next year <laughs> I'm not oh. sure if you're ready to read it in, in one year. No, not am I. Uh, please don't. But they're definitely coming. Carmen, you said a lot of nonfiction. What else can you tell us about your nonfiction reading list or maybe a few fiction in there somewhere? Because you, you told me where's the limit and I told you the sky is the limit or my power bank and I recharged it. So... Yeah, so I have I have also fiction on the list, but on the non-fiction side, uh, I discovered via like often via reading articles in New Yorker or somewhere. Then you know, book is mentioned, and then of course I, I need to immediately know what it is, and often I end up buying it. So one of the books I also bought during the time is by Amy Stewart, who I I'm sorry to say I didn't know before. So she's actually a crime writer, an American crime writer, who is also known for other non-fiction books like The Drunken. Botanist. It's a beautiful book. 
on the outside and on the inside. And basically, it's the plants that create the world's greatest dreams. What what I love about her writing is it's very educational. In a way, she goes through all the plants that are, you know, either, you know, you make alcohol of it, you put it in cocktails, like all of these botany stuff. And you can really see she does the whole research on agave, how it, you know, came to be, what is used for, some anecdotes from the history. And at the same time, it's very witty book. It's, it's funny. She's funny. She has, like, a wonderful comment and really good recommendations on, I don't know, how to make cocktails, uh, <laughs> which is also something I've been, uh, you know, getting busy with <laughs> in those weeks. And then I started looking a bit more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've improved, at least for my taste, the gin and tonics and some infusions. But I mean, I have to say that her book, as it's a botanist, has uh, also, yeah, <laughs> exactly, research and testing. But it has also taught me a lot about, I don't know, things like orchids that, you know, I've been, um, despite the fact that I'm living in the tropics, somehow managed to, you know, kill. So, I mean, she gives really great tips. It's it's a it's a interesting book and it's education. And then I've noticed that she's also published another book on plants, just called Wicked Plants. And this, as uh, somebody who writes crime or you know aspires to write crime, it's a really great book where basically the whole alphabet of plants, as she says, that kill, maim, intoxicate, uh, and otherwise offend. <laughs> Maybe there's I love a it. plan for it's 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 wonderful. <laughs> I find it also very useful because often I mean this is like grass that you know grows anywhere in England, in Canada, here in Brazil. And I mean you might you know you might start it thinking it's innocent, but it's actually really poisonous. So I think it's useful also in a way of like not getting killed, but also in a way of like using it in a story. <laughs> Don't put it in your salad. <laughs> Exactly. But in your next book, yeah, maybe. Yeah, so these two were, I think, among my favorites, definitely. On the fiction part, I did read The Hunting Party by Lucy Foley. Uh, you, you mentioned it on Twitter, I think. Yeah, so I've read it just before the quarantine. And it's just, I mean, it really pulled me in. It's such a great book that I then read it again during quarantine. And I wanted to break it apart because, I mean, the interesting part is, it's like you have several narrators. So basically the story happens just before New Year. I believe in Scotland somewhere it's very cold. There's snow. There's possibly a serial killer going around. They're almost alone there apart from, you know, two guests that ended up being there by coincidence and somebody dies. And this is clear from the first uh, moment. You know that somebody died on this party, but you don't know who until almost the end. I think it's at 80% of the book when you find out who the bo basically who, who died, who was the victim and also who was the killer I think it's so brilliantly paced it's really well written the voices are very real it's, it's, it's really a great book so yeah I read that twice just oh so. already twice. Uh, I think first time I was so eager to to get the story that you know then I had to read it again a bit slower to get all the details yeah it's very exciting I read also some other fiction I, I think I just basically got into some classics that I always wanted to basically catch up with or I always said oh I'll read that once so I did it now the one is Ishiguro Remains of the Day. Ah, yes. It's one of those classics. I mean, I read He's Never Let Me Go, which is one of my favorite books. I really like his style and it's really such a beautiful atmospheric book. And what I like is how basically it's like a nostalgic tale of a butler that tells a lot uh, between the lines about the history, about, says a lot about basically his own yearnings, his own basically relationship to his father, uh, basically this unspoken love between him and another worker that, you know, that it has left since then. It's really, it's really such a beautiful book. And I feel it, for me, this was like a long, you know, like taking a, a long breath and out breath, like a sort of a, a meditation in this crazy time. A bit sad, but also like very, very real in a way. And one of the books that was, because right away when the quarantine started, there were, I think in, in the New Yorker, there was an article about all the books that people are reading now, all the classics, the plague, the blindness and things. So I've uh, also basically put those on the list, but it took a while before I started reading them because I think when you're so surrounded with a virus situation you don't necessarily also want to read so much about it but just uh, last week I think I finished The Blindness by Saramago and was absolutely blown away I mean this is an amazing book where 
the plot line is people start all of a sudden going blind. Nobody knows why. It's like a virus spreads with one person and then more and more people are blind and the government is trying to find a way on how to deal with it. What to now do with all these blind people? And at first they try to quarantine them and then of course things don't really go as planned. I mean, what I like about this story is that while you have this main story of people going blind, you have so much more. Basically said that, that it's kind of, not really even between the lines, it's, it's quite clearly spoken, but it's, it's about different types of blindness, you know, of human blindness that has nothing to do with the eyes. It says a lot about human behavior. It's like really scary how how real it feels, the way humans behave, where the world people start to behave in this story, and how you could also see that this, was, this is totally how it would happen. And an interesting thing that also as a writer, I found for this book, because uh, I often struggle with when you have many characters and to get all the names and how it all connects. Yeah. So he basically does not use any name in this book. There's no name, but still you always know who is who. I mean, he finds a way on how to refer to people like the first blind man. You always know. So he introduces them through stories. You always know who they are. It's really beautiful. And a bit, the only thing that uh, distracted me a bit, but it's a part of the style is that there's a function, there's basically no real punctuation. So commas are used instead of full stop. The whole story, also the paragraphs are very long. The dialogue is not, you know, really separated. It doesn't say who says who, but still more or less you know what's being said. But what, what is so beautiful about it is that it's like one long breath. Basically, it's all told in one breath and the flow is kind of amazing. And though it's so complicated without the punctuation, you still know what is being said and by who is just... Um, it's, I think it's really a masterpiece. And uh, I'm so glad. I don't think I would have otherwise found book. That was one of the more, so to say, deep ones. And more on the light side, I read Hermann Koch. He's a Dutch writer, I believe. Uh, so I read him in English. The last book is called The Ditch, which is, well, at least I found it really funny. It's about a mayor of, of Amsterdam who thinks that his wife is cheating on him. But there's not so much evidence as it is in his head. I also like the storytelling style, the comments he makes about himself, about other people. It's like not so much happens in that book in terms of uh, plot. At least I think, I mean, there are, of course, some happenings, some events, but more happens in in his head and that basically is what makes the whole story more interesting and I liked it so much that I, I ordered also his other book uh, well uh, the, the dinner so I think for me these were at least the main ones that I really really liked I did read some other stuff that was all interesting I don't think any of them were, were bad or something that I would regret but these are the ones that were I think the most inspired and I also read because I heard that the Cynthia was talking about the beta, beta version so I don't think this was quite a beta version it was more like an advanced copy by Zoe Sharp. So I am really happy and lucky to be in her reading team. Bones in the River is a really wonderful thriller of her new, I think it's now trilogy, but it might also become a series because people really like it. And she's also a really excellent writer and a very, how to say, very first person to follow on Twitter. She gives a lot of interesting insights and funny comments. And you also mentioned her that we might should be able to get her on a podcast. Maybe I have to. I have to ask or I have to read one of her books first. Yeah, maybe. Let's wait and see how that works out. <laughs> uh, so far, nobody has declined an invitation. Let's wait and see. Maybe. <laughs> That's something I wanted to ask both of you. Have there been any books you'd say, oh God, why did I buy that book? And who will give me back the hours I spent with this book? Or not at all? I haven't felt that way since I read Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch. <laughs> <laughs> So, did you finish? Uh, I haven't felt that way lately. Yes, I did. Oh, yes. <laughs> And um, <laughs> it was a slog. I think after that, I became much more, I became less reliant on reviews from people I don't know and more reliant on recommendations and feeling more confident asking people that I know for a recommendation than just reading that somebody, you know, says, read this book at the New York Times or whatever, unless I really like that reviewer. But yeah, so I haven't read a, a dead lately. Carmen, what about you? I mean, I did read one book. It was uh, some nonfiction uh, vegetarian cuisine book that was quite disappointing. But I, I, it was not also really a book. It was more like a long article somehow, you know, posing to be a book. And I returned that. I, di I didn't like it at all. I didn't think it was useful. But other than that, I don't know. I think I, I, usually before when I was reading, I always felt, you know, once I started reading the book that I wanted to finish it also for the sake of finishing, but for knowing, you know, if it gets any better or not. But I think at this point, I'm 
also a bit like, I mean, life's too short to read books you don't like. So if it doesn't pull me in in the first, like, I don't know, 50 pages, uh, that's really maximum. Then I just put it down and I stop reading it and I don't go on. I think the last book that I found, uh, The Divine Comedy. So The Divine Comedy, mm. which makes me wonder because we've talked about... In the last episode of the German podcast, we talked about Lord of the Rings. And I said, oh, I've suffered through the first part. And James said, why did you go on reading? I said, because of the promise that it would get better. And promise was fulfilled because the first book is a lot of description, about a lot of nature and so on. And the second book and the third book, they are great. So I don't regret reading the first part to get to the second part. Some books don't get better. So yes. how do you know to put it away or go on reading? Hmm. I think it's just a personal choice for people. Some people like to be in unhappy relationships. <laughs> and they don't know when to stop. <laughs> so um, I think you just have to let them read it <laughs> till they get to the end. And then they're like, oh, that was a waste of time. I do think when you're in a series, though, you get like you're describing, which is brilliant and epic. And it, it takes at least a novel to get really into to the, the context and the character dynamics and, and all of that. But it carries you then on for such a long period of time that that investment is totally worth it. So yeah, I think you have to weigh that up when you're trying to make that decision. Yeah, yeah, true. And did you, the both of you, did you do a lot of reading for research for your books or did you decide that no, no research, just... I do so much research, I continue to do research. <laughs> I read the Egyptian Book of the Dead, talk about oh. something that really, you know, took a lot of perseverance. And I have the Egyptian Myths, A Guide to the Ancient Gods and Legends by Gary Shaw that uh, was one of the pieces I read as research for my novel that's set in Egypt. And I, you know, I think when I wrote The Polar Bear and The UFO, which is my illustrated children's book coming out later this year. I wanted to learn a lot about how polar bears feed and move and all of those sorts of things. And so that was a lot of reading, mostly on the internet, um, not necessarily in a book form, but yeah, I do a lot of work, a lot of research. Mm -hmm. How about you, Carmen? Yeah, I would I say the same. I mean, I'm well, currently still doing research for the final. So I mean, I, you know, the book one is done maybe we'll have some more polish, but there should be a book too sometime soon. Um, I mean, it's also in a way really a pleasure because and that's all the stuff that I want to know more about. So I read a lot of books, non-fiction books, biographies about spies, then I read a lot of spy uh, fiction just to see, you know, how how they do stuff. There's another book, the science fiction that I've been kind of working on and off for a few years now that is quite complex. And I've read a lot, a lot of articles. I'm still following also like non-fiction books about artificial intelligence science fiction book I think whatever you write about uh, if you you know don't know much about it, it it makes sense to you know do research and find out more because otherwise if you, you know what you don't want is like once the book is out and then people will say oh but this is you know not really how you do stuff or this is not you know this is not correct I mean you don't want uh, to be to look like you don't know what you're writing about and since we are both on Twitter and seem to follow this, the same people on Twitter did you also read or download Carolyn Kirby this new book when we fall well, when we fell when we fall I downloaded it and it's about no. the second world war I haven't seen it I haven't but it's very new and there's also another one by oh, it's not it's not a second world war but it's about uh, since you mentioned all kinds of illnesses and virus and so on by Alice Hawkins The Black and the White which takes place during the plague and the question is the people who died did they die from the plague or were they murdered it's about a journey and during the journey Many people die, and the question is: Was it the plague or was it murder? Hmm, that sounds interesting, but it's fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's fiction, and I've done it because it, it's a. Uh a rather new one and it sounded interesting mm -hmm. it does I haven't started it yet so you might have come across it I haven't it has also a series about a Welsh coroner which takes place in Wales in the 19th century he came back from London he worked in London as a barrister and he came back or comes back to Wales because he's going blind oh hmm. he thinks he will not be able to cope in London as a barrister so he returns home and then he starts working as a coroner and he gets an assistant and they work on different cases and it's a lot of again she puts in a lot of social history the way people lived and so on the differences between the classes and so on and I can recommend it 
or this is serious? I think it's kind of an interesting time to be writing history or fictional history because our history books were written by predominantly white men with a very male point of view about events that transpired. And oftentimes the women in the story, uh, their role is omitted. People of color have been missing from history books as well. And so I think it's nice to see now that we have coming more books that represent a richer story and a more accurate story of of events. And um, in some cases, it's fictionalized, but I think it's um, it, it draws so much on historical events that you really mm. you get really get a sense of, of what's been missing all these years. Yeah, I mean, I for one love to read historic fiction, be it crime fiction or even romance, because I love history, and that's also why I bought this The Five because everyone knows about Jack the Ripper, or there has been loads bookloads, shiploads of books about Jack the Ripper, whom we don't know at all. We don't know who Jack the Ripper was. There have been TV shows and films and so on. But what about the women? What about the victims? Like I said before, everyone assumes all of them were prostitutes. But that's not a given, actually, when you take a closer look. Yes, I'll look for that. So now, are you reading that book in English? I'm just curious because English yeah. isn't your native tongue. And, yeah, yeah. And do you, so you don't make choices when you are looking for books on whether they're in German or English. You just go for the title that you want. Yeah, absolutely. But usually we just go straight for the English section at the bookshop because I rarely read books in German these days, to be honest one or the other non-fiction book, but usually I read English. Yeah, unless um, they're written in German or yeah. a translation from, from another language, not English. Okay. I guess there's also more choice. Yes, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Which is not always a good thing. <laughs> Too much choice. And But yeah, I usually do. I usually look for the English, English section in the bookshops which is not that vast. So the choice is not that big, but on Amazon. So I usually look for the English books. Or like she said, it might be a German author. I would I would buy in German, of course, but mm-hmm. otherwise I would buy the English edition. Okay. Have you read anything from German-speaking authors which have been translated? There? No, I haven't. What about you, Carmen? I will probably not pronounce the name. I don't, I'm not even sure I remember it correctly. I think it's Stephanie Rapp. She was on Crime Fest like, I don't know, three years ago. And it was uh, a thriller. I was, was really nice thriller. Yeah, I didn't read so much. Yeah, not so much others. But I do read a lot of uh, non-English authors. Cynthia, do you read, sorry, it's a stupid question maybe, but do you read Dutch or French or? I don't. I'm not, I'm just not good enough. Yeah. Yeah, that I read other authors mostly in English. I do read Dutch, but I read more articles than books. I mean, I did read autobiography of uh, Astrid Holeder. I read it in Dutch, but I would not, I think, read really like books in Dutch. I prefer English. I think it's the easiest for me. I don't know. Somehow I think English is also because I, I write in English and I'm not a native speaker. So for me, it's in a way to reinforce the language, but also to kind of explore it in a way. So I think it's my preferred language for Mm, for me as well at the moment and sometimes when I read a book in German I stumble over a sentence and I think really do we really say it like this Hmm. okay (laughs) <laughs> Maybe we don't because we're not in Germany. Because yeah. some expressions, uh, they, oh, yeah. it's, it's different in Germany than in Austria. And all the books are print, most of the books are printed in Germany. And so there are differences in the expressions. Yeah, you will. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I mean, we understand them, but we don't really use them. Right. That makes sense. Good thinking when you read an odd phrasing. And especially because we don't read that much in, in German, it sounds more strange uh, than if we would read all the books in German. because. We're not used to reading these expressions yeah, all the time. Yeah. True, yeah. There's also a bit of difference, at least this is my impression, in like um, sentence construction. Some languages, there is also constructions. I mean, at least what I've read of Portuguese, very little, either in Portuguese or translation, the sentences are very, very long, which is not something I'm, you know, used to. So sometimes it's, I really struggle, especially when it's not in English, like what, what, what is it trying to say? It's just a difference in storytelling style, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
And we also had this conversation before, but the differences between the British English and the American English, because our friend Jean said, and I mentioned that with Jane Olden in our conversation, she said she's a lovely elderly lady uh, from England, and she usually goes to the library to find a, a new book for herself. And she says, oh, she told us, you know, if I find out or when you, when I, when I browse through the book and I see it's written in American English, I put it back and look for another one because you know i don't have time for this <laughs> oh bless her yep <laughs> i think it's a it's a little bit because we can a little bit compare it with german german and austrian german because you need to write german german to really get an audience a greater audience or even sometimes get published because the publishing houses are very few in Austria and for a wider audience you probably need to write German German. But in, in crime fiction for example it might be different because there are lots of very local placed crimes these days in there are I don't know how many authors write about Lower Austria. Don't get me wrong I'm from Lower Austria and it's the largest of our federal provinces but really every village needs a detective and a murder really. <laughs> But but it, I don't know. It, it seems uh, people like to read crime set in the countryside. It's more maybe it's a bit more quirky, the, more peaceful in some way. I don't know than in the big city. But then you also need to get the language right because it, I agree. I think uh, murder in the countryside is a fascination because it's such a small place where everybody knows each other, or do they really? And you know, everybody kind of knows what others are doing. So it's even more intriguing to have like a murder happening in like a small community where people think they know everything, but maybe they don't. What I find a bit boring or annoying if a book is set, let's say, in Austria and it's uh, very local, if it's not a crime. It's, if it's not crime fiction, uh, you can count on it. You can bet on it that somewhere in the book you have the mention of our past, our not-so-distant past. And I personally find it a bit boring and a bit annoying. So, I mean, yeah, we all know it and we should deal with it maybe in a different way, in a better way, especially in Austria. But do we really have to put it in every bloody book who wants to earn or who wants to win, I don't know, an award? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe it has to be that way. I don't know. But I think overall there are not so many Austrian authors that are published. Yeah, true. Not much choice there. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, maybe Cynthia will know a bit more uh, about that because I'm only like following not very closely, but uh, the publishing industry seems to be also changing a bit. I mean, in at least the English-speaking world, not just with the independent publishing, but also with some kind of Hebrew options in uh, independent publishing and traditional publishing. So I think this might change in the next years. I think it's a really challenging environment. I'm a member of the Independent Book Publishers Association, IBPA, and there are a lot of small indie publishers that have grown up in the United States over the past five or so years. I don't know exactly when that movement began, but um, there's certainly, it's become more and more accessible to small independents and even individuals to publish a book. And so, but there's a lot of struggle. I've been on some Zoom meetings with members of IBPA who really are feeling very uncertain about the future, even though online book sales are really strong right now and audio sales are soaring and digital sales are soaring. These people are very unsure about how they're going to continue to put out five or, or 15 titles a year in the current environment. And I think in the US, you know, we're hearing 40 million people unemployed or something. It's its really crazy. So there's a big question mark hanging over a lot of these small independent publishers. And, you know, I think it will take a little bit of ingenuity to seize on the opportunities that, that do exist because you have these huge publishing houses that, that can't move quite as quickly and respond in the same way. So I think it's kind of, a, I mean, it's not a good situation, but there are, there are people who are finding ways to, to make it work for them. So I think that's 
going to be the recipe for success for people. And do you think that authors will have to put certain topics into their books to get published, like I mentioned, for Austria? I, I think that's just a losing proposition from the very beginning, to be honest with you. If that's true, then you're, you might be suggesting that next year will be the year of a revisiting of civil rights and, and what's gone wrong from the inception of the United States until now. And that might be, I don't know, because it's a big problem that has to be dealt with. I think, you know, there's some things we don't want to forget from our history that are important. And if they haven't been resolved satisfactorily, then they need to be revisited. But I also think that, you know, history, history is an interesting thing. I use a lot of it in the, the in the work that I do around objects and the history contained within objects and how important that is and, and how easy it is to forget that these objects were functional things at the time they were made. And now we revere them as, as art almost. We put them on a pedestal and we ooh and ah them, but we don't really understand what they mean about the people who made them. So I think there's a fear of losing touch with the, the the events and the and the objects that helped propel us to where we are now but at the same time you know I don't know I, we, we pick we cherry pick through history so much that it's like it almost means nothing because mm. we the things we choose to you know to to put in our books sometimes doesn't really serve the story but I think when it does it's really it needs to be there mm. sometimes it, it serves a purpose like I will sell more books or it gets more interesting or like I said you might win an award yeah I don't I think that's kind of a losing ambition <laughs> it's hollow I think so yeah I I, I would agree uh, I think w one of the things at least that I followed a bit more lately was people asking writers asking uh, you know whether they think that COVID stopped the virus uh, type of the uh, dystopias, you know, should like basically pick up now because of the situation. And also agents saying, please don't pitch that, you know, I don't want to read about it. It's like a bit in a way opportunistic, but also it's way too early to kind of read about it when we still haven't processed it. So I I mean, I don't know. I mean, I hope there really aren't many authors who try to kind of insert historical, you know, details as a sort of say, backdrop to make their book sell better. Uh, but I also cannot see how this would work in a story because you need to be really, you know, I mean, if this fits in the story, fine, but if it doesn't, I mean, you need to be really skillful to, you know, write it in a way that is convincing for a reader. So I don't see how this would also work. Yeah, I agree. You have to be careful. But maybe it will become um, the, the setting, for example, um, a family or marriage drama during lockdown and so on because if people can't get out, they have to cope with another. So. I think it would be more interesting about the lovers who can't be together because <laughs> of COVID. <laughs> Not those that are locked in the same small two-bedroom apartment, like, oh, that's too close to everybody's scenario. Yeah, or even a, a, an apartment complex where people had to stay inside and somebody gets murdered, Carmen. <laughs> Now, this, you have a specific type of locked room. I like this idea, but <laughs> probably I would not be the one who would do uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> might be an interesting idea use a whole apartment complex not just one house or one room so there are two killers There's yeah the, the virus and then someone else i think not uh, too Ooh. big a building because otherwise it will get be to be a bit too confusing or too hard to write about oh <laughs> the people living there yeah a modest one <laughs> 12 apartments yeah <laughs> Everyone thinks no. they know each other, but do they? Yeah, just like the small village, like Carmen said, yeah. where everybody thinks everyone knows every everybody's business. And yet, when you take a closer look... Hmm. So, so it probably will pop up just in a... Of course it will. <laughs> yeah, of course it will. I won't will. be buying that book. <laughs> <laughs> Unless, of course, one of you writes it. Oh, I, I don't think so. Maybe <laughs> I don't think so. I won't. So, ladies, any more books which you would like to know our readers about? Yeah, there's one book uh, that I would like to mention. I'm actually just finished uh, reading it now for a third time. It's because some books, I mean, you know, you just want to return to them in a while when you've forgotten enough detail to kind of see them with fresh eyes. Yep. It's a non-fiction book on writing by Stephen King. So I mean, oh, yeah. I, I read this book first time 10 years ago and then I got it on Kindle and now I got it in book book again and you know, like I'm reading it and it, it's such a wonderful book. I mean, it's for 
intended for people who write, but I think anybody who likes Stephen King's writing or is interested more about him would also be happy to read it. It's a part, sort of say, autobiography. He writes about his life and anecdotes in the way that he says, you know, this is what shaped me as a writer. He, he says he doesn't believe you become a writer, but you know, it's like if you just get shaped. So it's part about his life, his growing up. It's a lot of personal notes there, also on, on, on the period when he was struggling with addiction. And on top of that, he gives like really brilliant advice. I mean, from his perspective on, you know, how to write or how at least writing works for him. Yeah, exactly. That's the book. I have it too. Um, uh, And it's so funny. Like every time I read it, what I do basically is I end up buying more of his books. He's a good writer, whether it's long fiction or fiction. Um, Yeah, I just like end up also (laughs) ordering more of his books. And he explains about how idea process works for him, basically how he got, I don't know, idea for misery and from his initial idea to the, the final idea. Uh, he does in a way that, you know, you just keep on turning the pages. It's such a great book. So, you know, I, I said something that was um, not accurate earlier. I think I said that the last book I read cover to cover was Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch, but actually it was Stephen King's Needful Things, oh. which was a summer read of mine two summers ago. Needful Things, if mm-hmm. you haven't read it, is really good. I've read a few of his. And does he mention the ending of It in his book? Because I'm still wondering. Oh, I don't, I don't think so. Oh, <laughs> no spoilers here. Because I, I've always wanted, I've read the book, I've watched the film, both versions, and I'm still, at the end, I'm still thinking, what the f*** is that? <laughs> I mean, I, I got an I, or I got an idea these days, but when I read it the first time, I thought, really? That one's too creepy for me. Mm, no, it was was the right kind of creepy, not too much. <laughs> what what was what really creeped me out was the one with the bats, the pet pet cemetery. Oh, pet cemetery. Yeah, yeah. that's really creepy because if you have pets and you think about it, mm. I think that was the first book I read by him. Like 14 and I was so afraid after reading that I was like really scared but at the same time I couldn't stop reading I think this is what got me hooked completely like then I it just went like oh you know, on from there. That's the thing with such things because you think, oh God, oh God, no, no, no. And yet you can't put it away. It's mm-hmm. fascinating. It's like watching something. You want to look away, but you can't. That's what fascinates us. We we don't want to look, but we can't look away. Yeah. That's a bit like reading one of his books. It creeps mm-hmm. you out, but you can't put it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you read or did you stumble across, Carmen said one book that was, was funny and did you... I don't know, but maybe you did look for books that are on the lighter side because, I don't know, a comedy or such during this whole thing started. Mm, I haven't read a comedy for a while. Mm, okay. Mm, I can't think of one even. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. I mean, I don't think I've chosen books for the, like, so to say, comic. I mean, I watched a lot of comedy, mostly, uh, you know, online, like Trevor Noah, John Oliver, because I just like, you know, felt I needed it. But on the book side, I think it's almost always the plot or the story or the first page that pulls me in. You know, like uh, one side reading and then you just keep on reading and it turns out to be funny. But I didn't know it was funny. Uh, like especially for the drunken botanist I thought that's like a manual you know in a way educational manual but it turned out to be like a brilliant funny book and now of course I want to read also her crime books because I wonder what she does with all this botanist knowledge in her stories but to choose it for the comedy I don't think so Mm -hmm. it's also in a way I don't know I think it's very hard to write comedy I mean I don't know I admire you know writers who can be funny but more often than not I read stories that are not meant to be funny but are amusing Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you read Ruth Dudley Edwards' books from the Crime Fest, the one who writes comedy kind or humorous crime fiction, rather? She's Irish. No, yeah, I haven't, no? not yet. I've read one of hers where it's about art and modern art and so on. It's really good. It's really funny. Hmm. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, because she's very critical of modern art and how it is presented and what is perceived as art nowadays compared to what she thinks or let's say her the character. Masters. Yeah, yeah, what, what her main character thinks is, is art. 
what is the title? I don't know the uh, but look for Ruth Dudley Edwards ladies. Anything else you would like to add for our readers or listeners, sorry, or listeners what they should look for or what they could read or what they should not read. Donna Darts was what was it? Goldfinch. <laughs> Goldfinch. <laughs> I think it's you know, I think it's uh, you know, our summer our idea of summer's being challenged because we don't have the freedom of movement, we don't have the ability to leave country and travel to exotic locations and maybe even see friends and family. So I think it's an interesting summer in that way. And maybe it's a good time to to search in a different genre or, mm. you know, to pick something up that is completely out of character for you because this time is out of character for a lot of us or we're feeling out of character already. Yeah. And it may be that you'll stumble upon something that opens up a new sort of world for you that you otherwise wouldn't have even encountered before and and why not you know like life's too short so yeah true but i also wonder if people will really read all the books they've bought for the kindle just of like of course not yeah of course not <laughs> they never do no of course not just like the huge amounts of pasta they bought at the beginning of this whole thing when will they ever oh, eat it oh have you been looking in my cupboards <laughs> <laughs> Beans and pasta. <laughs> Today, days ago, we saw a package of five kilograms of pasta. Ooh, wow. I don't know who buys that apart from a restaurant. Yeah, that's It a was lot. in a supermarket. <laughs> no, no idea. But we can get toilet paper now, which is rather comforting. <laughs> So no, people w won't read the books. I will read my books I've bought because uh, I would have bought them anyway, I think. Maybe later. At least you plan on reading them. Of course. You haven't read all the books you bought. No, you not yet, but most of them. <laughs> Contrary to you, my dear, I have read all my books from Grimefest last year. Have you done the same? I dare say no. No. <laughs> I have less time. <laughs> But I hope I will. Carmen, have you read all your books from Crime Fest? No. No, I mean, um, and they're all kind of tipped apart because they've been recommended by a friend or, you know, uh, you just feel like reading it at the time. So it's it's slow process but it's ongoing but we have one year to catch up another year more one more year yeah, mm. yeah. well I, i actually have a question more yeah. than uh, addition yeah. what what is the main for all of for all of you what what is the you know for why you pick a book I think Cynthia, you already mentioned you get recommendations from friends, but you know, it's like you are in a bookshop, what makes you pick or buy a book, you know, is it reading the first chapter or? For me, it starts with the cover and the art. Yep. It's a big one. And then I flip it to the back. Sometimes it can be something in the title that catches my eye mm. and then I turn it over. Mm. Yeah, in, especially in the bookshop, you. Uh, I agree with Cynthia because you look at uh, at the cover art and or a title, and it catches your eye, and then you turn it to the back and you read the blurb at at the back. Yeah, I think it covers because the ones I've bought here, I've stumbled across them, like I said on Twitter, because people mentioned the this one, especially the five. I think I've came across it on Twitter because the author mentioned it was published. The paperback came out this year. And I think someone mentioned it and I thought, hey, that sounds good. And the others, Blood and Sugar, because uh, I always read the tweets by Laura Shepard Robinson and I'm looking forward to the second one. But they pushed back the date of the publishing. It should have been published in May, but they pushed it back until I think September because of mm -hmm. COVID. Or I stumble across it on, on Amazon when I'm when I'm browsing, but... In a bookshop, like you said, it's the cover. I think the difference is if you're just browsing, then it's uh, the cover or the title. Or if you come across it in an article or in a review, then you then I read about it uh, and think, okay, it sounds interesting. It's mm. different. Mm. Mm. Sometimes also magazines. Or recommendations by someone. Yes, or when you, when you start with this book, because what she already wrote, I said, okay, put it away. Mm. Because I'm sure if I, if I look them up, I will order the other books as well. My mother was like that too. She would, when she found an author that she liked, she would read it everything that that author wrote well not necessarily everything but if if there is a book by the same author which i say yeah okay sounds interesting or the spirit of time sounds interesting i will order this one as well not necessarily all of them especially if it's non-fiction mm. fiction is something else especially if it's a series so yeah. i will read all books in a series if i like them mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> 
And what what about you? I mean, I do. I, it's all of these also combined. For me, it's, I mean, definitely it's the cover that draws the attention. Then normally what I would do is I would, you know, read what is in the sleeve inside, you know, what it says, like in two sentences, summary of the plot. But then more often than not, now I just basically go on the first page and I just start reading. Because I've also bought books that had very exciting sounding plots. And, you know, like, you know, especially when you're in a buying frenzy and you buy lots of books. And then I did not always like them from the style. So I always check the first pages. And if it was me, then I would buy it. Uh, also, I do that also online because these days you can see first few pages of a book uh, yeah. and kind of see if this is uh, the type of reading. I mean, it's, it's often not the story, it's the style. Some styles are just, you know, your your preference for reading. So uh, that would be it, yeah. Mm, okay. Anything else you would like to add? Nope. Well, thank you, ladies. Not at the moment. Thank you. <laughs> This has been really fun. So thank you for, for the invitation. Of course. It was lovely to chat and I'm looking forward to gathering all these recommendations and getting more getting busy. And thank you for agreeing to this chat and doing it and making time for us for this episode. Oh, my pleasure. It was fun for me. Yeah, it was for us as well. Thank you for doing it. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll meet again at Book Lovers Companion. The books mentioned in this episode for your summer reading. Mark O'Connell, Notes from an Apocalypse, A Personal Journey to the End of the World and Back. Amy Stewart, The Drunken Potanist, The Plants That Create the World's Great Drinks. And also by Amy Stewart, Wicked Plants, The A to C of Plants That Kill, Maim, Intoxicate and Otherwise Offend. José Saramago, Blindness. Hermann Koch, The Ditch. Katsuo Ishiguro, Remains of the Day. Lucy Foley, The Hunting Party. Stephen King, On Writing, A Memoir of the Graft. Also by Stephen King, Needful Things. Zoe Sharp, Bones in the River. Naomi Alstedt, The Apology Box, Young Adult Fiction that will be published 2021, Colin Walsh, Magic Potatoes and Green Welts. The audio version was on BBC Radio 4 in 2018. N. Enright, The Green Road, William Seacard, The Poetry Pharmacy, Tried and True Prescription for the Heart, Mind and Soul. Diane Sinner, The All-Night Sun. George R. R. Martin, Dance of Ice and Fire. Alice Hawkins, The Black and the White. Also by Alice Hawkins, The Tearfy Valley Mysteries, Book 1, Non So Blind, Book 2, In Two Minds, and Book 3, Those Who Know. A list of the books can also be found in the description of the episode. Enjoy your summer reading.